chapter 1, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. If you were with us last time, which seems like forever ago, we see the gospel, the good news of Jesus, cross borders, cultural, racial borders for the first time. It's pretty beautiful and amazing. But while this is going on, the good news is spreading all over the earth, danger, trouble strikes back home. That's what's happening in chapter 12. That there is a tragedy back home. It's a bit of a vulnerable question. It may come out of the blue for some of you. Have any of you ever had your home or car broken into? A few hands. Now, that's never happened to me, but I've, you know, your, your first response usually is anger. And your second one, listening to people that have had this experience, is, is vulnerability, especially if it's your home. It's a, a feeling of not being safe. Um, and this text here in chapter 12 makes us ask the question, are we safe here? Are we safe here? And I think the text, chapter 12, gives us a pretty clear answer. No, not exactly. We're not safe here. Um, but the good news, and hang with me on this, is that the world's powers that are allied against God and his people, they're not safe either. God's at work. And uh, we're going to see how this plays out in chapter 12. So I'm going to be reading Acts 12. Feel free to follow along up there. Here we go. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some of those who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept in saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw it was him. And they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and he spent some time there. 
And Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took a seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God, not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. Our great Father, we ask that you show us great things in your law and press them into our hearts. They might bear fruit for your glory and goodness for others. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, though it may bring some of you distress, we have not yet exhausted all that Thor Ragnarok has to offer us. It's true. It's true. I would like for you to consider briefly that paragon of pragmatism, Scourge. We first meet Scourge showing off to two girls, if you remember, with his favorite pets. Remember them? Des and Destroy. And Troy. When you put them together, they destroy. These are two AK-47s, by the way. And, uh, you know, he's sort of overconfident and showing off. That all changes when Hela, goddess of death, arrives. Uh, at the slightest show of resistance, she quickly mows down the two guards of the bridge. And Serge, if he remembers, immediately kneels, saying, I'm just a janitor. And Hella approaches and says, you look like a smart boy with good survival instincts. How would you like a job? Uh, she recognized him as a man of compromise, a pragmatic man, you might say, a coward. Uh, Scourge is caught between competing loyalties, Asgard, his home country, and Hella. But that's actually not true. He's never actually, it seems, really committed to her. He's really committed to himself, his own self-preservation. He's doing what's best for himself. And so he makes a pragmatic choice. She's overwhelmingly powerful. It'd be foolish not to serve her. And his job leads him to places and things that he doesn't want to go to or do, such as being her executioner. And that's, that's the nature of reality. Decisions are commitments, and they have legs. They carry us to unforeseen consequences. It happens all the time. And uh, that's the nature of gross pragmatism. Making a decision that's good for me now almost always has consequences that we don't foresee. Jesus talked about this pretty clearly, actually. Grand scale, small scale, all of it. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and hate the, despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And this is very bad news for us. First, Jesus is saying you absolutely have to decide. You have to serve one. You have to commit. And as Americans, we don't want to choose. We believe we can have both at all times. Uh, we, we really want to have it both ways. And secondly, in, in Jesus' equation, money is on that other side. The side of money is the side of power, the side of security. And Jesus is inviting us to choose the other side, the God side. 
And we get a good picture of what the God side looks like in chapter 12. Choosing the God side in this world often looks like choosing the path of suffering. It looks like, in the face of the world's powers, choosing vulnerability and weakness. In Acts chapter 12, the church is vulnerable. The church is weak. And the world, in its wealth and power, in the person of Herod, is alluring. Choose us. Security is here. Or threatening. If you don't choose us, you will suffer. And here's the question. Can we commit and stay committed to the cause and person of Jesus in the face of suffering? Can we do it? When the world is promising us security or threatening us with suffering if we don't fall in line. And what we're going to see tonight is that Jesus is this world's true good power and we should trust him. So uh, we're going to talk about power and posture and purpose here tonight. And the text actually falls out, I don't know if you noticed this, like a, like a pretty cool three-act play with an epilogue. And like all good plays, we have to start with the cast. So we'll talk about people real quick. Let's talk about the people we're going to encounter here in the text. Uh, the cast, pretty quickly, is first of all, Herod the king. This is grandson of Herod the Great, the Herod from the Old Testament, like back in the Gospels, the Herod from Jesus. That was his granddaddy. And, uh, and Herod is a powerful man. We actually know a lot about Herod, not just from the Bible, but from Josephus, first century Jewish historian. Pretty much confirms everything our text tells us uh, that Herod was pretty much a gift giver, generous. He sought to please the Jews, and uh, he did it pretty reasonably well. Basically, when they were happy, they didn't cause trouble. When they didn't cause trouble, Rome was happy with him, and he got to keep being king, which is what he really wanted. So um, this is Herod by nature. We also, in verse 2, meet James, uh, brother of John. We first meet him way back in Mark chapter 1. One of the very first people that Jesus calls to follow him is this guy. And, he, and Jesus tells him in Mark chapter 10, uh, you're going to be baptized with the same baptism as me, which is a prelude to what happens here. I think Jesus is alluding to the fact that you're, you're going to die like me. He's with Jesus from the start, but now he's dead. In verse 3, we have this allusion to the Jews being pleased by Herod's actions. I don't think this is an allusion or a reference to the entire Jewish people, but rather the leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who've been wanting to suppress this movement of Jesus since chapter 3. We also meet Peter in uh, verse 3. Peter's in Jerusalem, and so he's also captured. He's been prominent in the whole book since chapter 2. We see that he is surrounded by four squads of soldiers. That's four squads of four. Two chained, one each side, two guard in the doors, and they rotate around the clock. This is maximum security in the ancient world. And we see in verse 5, the church. The church is praying, and we sort of meet the people of the church in verses 12 to 17. And lastly, far in the background, but still there, the people of Tyre inside in verse 20. They provide some background and some political intrigue that will uh, add some spicy details later in the text. So that's our cast, and uh, we jump now to the discussion of power. Because when you look at all these people, what you see is disparate levels of power. Some people have some power, some people have less power, some people have no power. And Herod seems to have all the authority and power of mighty Rome behind him. The Jewish leaders have some power, some persuasion, but they don't have the power to put people to death. They would like Herod to put Peter to death. And uh, then we have James and Peter, who we suspect 
should have power. They're supposed to have power, right? Uh, James was nicknamed, along with his brother, Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. That sounds powerful, right? Well, he goes down without a whimper here. Peter is nicknamed the rock from Jesus. There's nothing very powerful or intimidating going on here. He is seemingly helpless. Uh, Josh Ritter, one of my favorite songwriters, uh, has a little line in one of his old songs that sort of sums up uh, what I think we might feel like here. He, he sings, the keys to the kingdom got locked inside the kingdom. The angels fly around in there, but we can't see them. Uh, Josh Ritter's not a Christian, but he knows the Bible fairly well. The keys to the kingdom was the promised authority given to the, to the apostles. The, the, the real authority of Jesus to do things in this world. And Ritter's saying, hey, if you've got powerful keys to the kingdom, they got locked inside the box. Because from out here, we can't see it. And right here, regarding John, James, Peter, can't see it. It seems altogether impotent. But Herod has the power to destroy. And he exercises it with you know, almost no explanation in verse 2. Uh, James is done. He's, he's gone. He uh, is powerless to keep his head. Herod probably only uttered a brief command, and, uh, and he was destroyed. And then he delivers over Peter, intending to bring him out to the people, verse 4, verse four says. Man, this is altogether ominous, if you know the New Testament, if you read the Gospels. This is the same time of year that Jesus was tried, in the same city where Jesus was tried. Uh, this feels way, way too familiar. And, uh, and given the fact that he's under 24-7 guard, um, you know, this looks altogether bleak. And the question is, who can deliver from the power of Herod's hand? And we see in verses 6 to 11 that the Lord can. I'm not going to retell the whole story, but it's pretty interesting. It's the night before. Out of time. He's surrounded. Two guys chained, two guys beside the door. Um... From all sides. Peter has no clue what's going on. He thinks it's a vision. In other words, Peter has an utter lack of contribution. Peter does nothing. Neither time, nor external opposition, nor either, nor even Peter's lack of understanding what's going on prevents God from rescuing his man. God completely delivers him. And this is a great picture of salvation in general. That when God saves a person... It's not because of anything they contribute or do. It's all grace, all God. And how great is his power to deliver? Well, it's so great that the church who's praying for him can't believe it when he shows up. It completely exceeds their expectations. It makes you ask, like, what were they praying for then? Were they praying for the dead? Well, they may have been praying for some other things, like uh, that he would just be punished and released. Or something like that. But they, they clearly weren't expecting an escape. Because when it happens, they have no idea. They can't believe it. They tell the girl she's crazy. And that's uh, because God has exceeded their expectations. And His power to deliver is so great, it defies explanation. 
The guards wake up in the morning, they've got nothing. No explanation for how this happened. And part of the reason that the church struggles and the guards struggle is because the power that God exercises is different than the world's power. That God's way of salvation and deliverance is different than the way we would exercise it. Uh, an old theologian named Martin Luther talks about the difference between right-handed and left-handed power. And, uh, and a recent theologian named uh, Francis Capon picks that up. You know, right-handed power in this case looks like jailbreak. I mean, you, you, you break in with force and you rescue him. But that's not what happens. Uh, I'll read a little bit from Capon. Right-handed power is responsible for, responsible for almost everything that happens in this world. And the beauty of it is, it works. From removing the dust with a cloth to removing your enemy with a forty-five, it achieves its ends in sensible, effective, easily understood ways. He goes on to say, Unfortunately, right-handed power is completely useless in loving relationships. He's right on. And then he says, Left-handed power is paradoxical power. It's power that looks for all the world like weakness. It's power that's mysterious. It sets up shop in the world of weakness. It works like a crucified king. If you think about the way God goes about saving his people by sending Jesus in the form of a servant and winning the great victory by death, that's power that looks like losing. That's left-handed power. And God is exercising left-handed power in such a way that no one understands what he's doing here. Now, word of warning, you are all in love with right-handed power. You love guarantees. You love getting things done. You love being on the winning side. You love politicians that promise grandiose things. You love wealth. You love security. You love decisions and processes that make sense and benefit you. Who doesn't? Here's another problem. Pragmatism. Remember pragmatism? We talked about at the beginning. Pragmatism is, I'm going to make a decision now that's best for me right now. Pragmatism is forever in bed with right-handed power. When you make a pragmatic decision, you're almost always making a decision that's in bed with right-handed power. It's not always a problem, but it can be a problem. Because pragmatism is often a compromise to powers that are strongly opposed to God and to his people. Not every decision you make is like this, but some of them are. Sometimes we make decisions that we don't even think about. It's good for us, but we don't think how it affects the poor, the weak, the unborn, or the foreigner. We don't even think about them. Sometimes our pragmatic decisions take us places we never thought we would go to. So we end up dating people or choosing things in our schedule that take us far from God in a way that we never could have predicted. And what I want to encourage you to do is pretty simple, actually. You can't avoid right-handed power in this world. It's not always bad. But I want you to learn to ask, not just, is this good for me right now, but when you have to make a decision, learn to ask, is this decision honoring to God and good for his people? You've got to learn to ask yourself that question. 
Is this the way that's honoring to God and good for his people? And secondly, is this decision one that trusts that God is good and powerful? Even if I can't see how it makes sense in this world, it's, it's trusting that God is good and powerful and maybe, maybe he has something up his left-handed sleeve that I can't see. Because he's powerful. Maybe in ways we don't always understand, but he's powerful. Let's talk about posture real quick. You know, posture is the accumulation of habits. It's, uh, it's your stance. Your habitual stance repeated over and over until it sticks with you. That's what your posture is, which is why I'm always trying to do this. I'm trying to fix like 43 years of bad posture. Um, and, and what we see in Herod is this posture is pride, okay? When the people of Tyre and Sidon, who uh, Herod's very mad at, they've been bickering. And as I said before, uh, he likes to keep the noise down. Noise gets to Rome. Noise in Rome gets you fired. And uh, he, they're fighting with each other. And they basically have reached an accord, and they come to him with an accord. And he gives a speech. Josephus says he's arrayed in silver. He's shining like the sun. And when he gives his speech, the, the, the people of Tyre and Sidon together say, the voice of a god and not a man. And, and what happens here is, uh, is not because of what they said. It's because he receives it. Herod receives their blasphemous praise. And as verse 22 says, 23 says, he doesn't give God the glory. He steals it. He keeps the glory for himself. You have a good example of what it looks like in chapter 10 when, when God tells Cornelius, send everyone you got to get Peter and bring them back here so you can hear what he has to say. Well, when Peter arrives, Cornelius falls on his face because he's thinking he's talking to an angel. And what does Peter say? Get up, man. I'm just a man like you. That's what humility looks like. But Herod doesn't do that. He accepts the praise. I'll let you think I'm a God. And uh, because he steals God's glory, God strikes him down. Very interesting thing to note. Herod was not like a lot of the other Jewish kings at the time. I mean, some of them were pretty gross, murderous, awful. Actually, from what we know from, Je- from Josephus, Herod was a lawkeeper. He tried really, really hard to keep the Jewish law. He offered sacrifices in the temple. He went out of his way to, to be observant. And God struck him down because he had a prideful heart. And this is what the Bible says over and over and over and over. It doesn't matter what you do. It matters where your heart is. The Bible says over and over and over that pride goes before a fall. And those who exalt themselves will be, will be humbled. And, and compare that to the posture of the church who in verse 5 are praying. They're, they're earnestly praying. Their posture is one of confident dependence in God. Now, it's not a model prayer because they seem to have really low expectations. Um, but, but they are nevertheless earnest, which means they, they believe. They believe that God hears them, that God cares, that God can act. And, and that posture, that posture of prayer is one of confident dependence that, that God cares, that he's powerful, that he's good. And prayer leans on him to be both powerful and good. Uh, a, a posture of prayer is one of humble dependence before God. And if you're in that posture before God, that posture looks like something different to the world. It looks like rebellion. Theologian David Wells puts it this way, prayer 
is rebellion against the status quo. It's rebellion against the status quo. It's coming to God and saying, things are not the way they're supposed to be. You promised you're good and powerful. Work as you promised. That's why, whatever else you may think politically, I do not want you to dump on those who are just offering prayers and thoughts, thoughts and prayers. It's been really popular in the last couple of months when someone says, thinking and praying, for a bunch of people to jump on them and say, oh, your thoughts and prayers are stupid. Why don't you do something? Well, maybe you should do something too. But prayers are powerful. God's at work. He listens. He cares. And I want to ask real quickly, what is your posture? What is your own personal posture? One pastor asks this, if you're not praying, it's not really an ask, it's more like a shot across the bow of your life. If you're not praying, then you are quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in this life. Just think in for a moment. Just do a little self-assessment over the last few months. If prayer is absent from your life, then no matter how stressed you are, Anxious or busy, you are still deep down personally confident that you have the wealth, resources, and ability to make it work for you. You're trusting in yourself and not in God. This is the path to stealing God's glory. That's what it is. And I would encourage you, friends. I know prayer is hard. I've been Christian for a long time. I know prayer is hard. But it's the posture we want. It's the posture that realizes he is good and great and at work. So we talked about power and posture. Let's talk about purpose real quick. Uh, the Bible doesn't give an overarching answer to the question of evil. Why does suffering exist in the world? Why does James die and not Peter? We don't get answers. Not complete answers. But we do get pieces of an answer. And I'll give you a few right here. This will be pretty quick. But some of this is from other parts of the Bible. But we sort of see it playing out here. The first one, and this is always true, why do we have to endure suffering in this world, is that God is being patient. This Peter, that's like hours away from being tried and condemned, almost loses his head. This same Peter will later write in one of his letters that the Lord is patient toward you, not, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So when people you know, ask Peter, like, why do we have to endure? Why is this still happening? Why doesn't he come? Why doesn't he fix things? Peter's answer is, God's being patient. If he comes and fixes everything right now, that looks like judgment. God's being patient with the world to give everyone a chance to hear, listen, turn, and believe. And what that means, uh, if you're here as a non-Christian tonight, is if this is true... It means that God is asking his people to suffer and endure for your sake. To give everyone who hasn't had a chance to hear a chance to hear. That's a pretty darn good reason, actually. Right? For us to continue to endure suffering so that everyone will have a chance to hear and turn and know the love of God. There's another reason uh, why God allows suffering to continue, and that's that it uses it to prepare us. God uses it to teach us about himself. Peter learned something about the Lord's saving power. I slept, walked through the whole thing. So great is his power. 
I thought it was a dream, but here I am. The church learns that God can do far more exceedingly greatly than they ever imagined. And uh, Peter Kraft in his book, Making Sense Out of Suffering, says this. I think it's really important for us. It's a hard pill to swallow. This is somewhat anti-American, frankly. The point of our lives in this world is not comfort, security, or even happiness. It's training. Not fulfillment, but preparation. This world's a lousy home. It's a fine gymnasium. And what this means, this is true of Christians. If you're a Christian, God is out to use suffering in this world to make you like Jesus. He wants you to be like Jesus more than he wants you to have anything else. And there's one other thing that he's doing here in suffering. I'll point it out pretty quick. By allowing this suffering, he is still making progress in the world. The gospel continues to go out. In verse 24, we read that the word of God increased and multiplied. I mean, there's a couple interesting little tidbits thrown in here. For one, um, in, in verse 1, they lose John. But along the way, we're introduced to two other people. In verse 17, we're introduced to James, who's an important leader in the church. That's actually Jesus' brother. Like, last time we saw Jesus' brother, he thought Jesus was crazy. Okay? We picked up James, and then we introduced this new guy named John Mark in verse 12. He'll show up over and over later in the book. This is like Hydra, you know, cut off one head, two more appear. Uh, you can't stop this. You can't stop this. Uh, powerful Herods, powerless to stop the growth of God's work here. So you have to make a choice, friends. Uh, we want to do both. We want to live in this world where we enjoy all the benefits of following Jesus and all the benefits of this world. It's not always possible. You have to make a choice. You're going to follow Jesus or yourself. And uh, sometimes that means being willing to undergo suffering. Uh, we were, many of us, as we alluded to earlier, were away last week in central Washington uh, working at Sacred Road. And uh, you may not know the backstory, but the backstory of Sacred Road is that it was begun by a husband and a wife and their family, Chris Granberry. Chris shared with us, I knew some of this story anyway, last week, sort of his own story. And his own story is one of <coughs> suffering. He lost a parent when he was young. And as a result, he sunk into depression, despair, self-hatred. He prayed that God would kill him every night for years. I'm not making this up. I mean, this is what he said. Um, and, and out of that, God completely, of his own grace, rescued him and brought him to himself. And uh, that's an important part of Chris's story and the nature of Sacred Road uh, and what goes on there. So years later, he's working on this reservation uh, with, with children who don't have parents. And I remember distinctly last year someone asking, I can't remember who it was, but how do people here come to trust you? I mean, you're the white man that has exercised power wrongly over these people for hundreds of years. Why would they ever trust you? And uh, his answer, uh, I don't remember the exact wording, but it was along these lines, and very clearly it was, they come to trust us when they see us suffer. When they see us suffer and we stay. If we suffer, it would make sense to all of them, like, you're still a rich white man, you can just go home back to Alabama. But you don't. You stay right here. And I think it's profoundly important, actually, what, what Chris is saying there. 
that somehow in the midst of our own suffering, God works in such a way to make his love and purposes known to others. This book hasn't come out yet, and you're going to hear about it first right here. Uh, A guy named David Cassidy in his forthcoming book, Indispensable, writes this. The truth is our suffering and our service make the gospel, the good news of Jesus, believable and beautiful in a world that's in the deranged pursuit of pleasure and power. The pain of God's people has always done more to open doors for the gospel than any amount of strength and success ever has. That's beautiful. Makes me want to read the book. And I think that's a really good encouragement for you to do a couple things. One, stop acting like you got your crap together. I mean, I'm serious. I mean, we're all suffering in some way. And we try so hard to act like we've got it all together, that everything's fine. Because we live in a culture that prizes security and success and power. So, don't be afraid to let the the crack show. Secondly, embrace a Lord that loves you in the midst of suffering. Jesus made his home right in the middle of it and trust that he can use it for the good of others, for, for your own personal growth and for the good of others. All right, I'm going to pray. Our good Lord Jesus, we pray you be kind to show us how good this offer is.